Welcome back to Jews on Film. My name is Harry Adamsasser. I've got a degree in film studies and I'm a Jew. And joining me as always is my co-host, Daniel Zana. Hi, everyone. My name is Daniel Zana. I'm a documentary filmmaker, a video editor, and I'm on cow milking duties this week. But I'm very excited to, you know, because he's like milking the cows in the, in the movie. Anyway, whatever, Harry. Not all of them can be hits, okay? <laughs> Not all of them. <laughs> Cut me some slack, dude. Uh, but we're really excited today to be discussing Image of Victory uh, with our guest today, who's a stand-up comedian, documentary filmmaker, producer, and as an actor, has starred in The Fresh Blanket on Amazon Prime. Dinah Leffert, welcome to Jews on Film. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited, too. And I got your Milk in the Cow reference. You're okay, good. Movie. Yeah. See, at least good. someone appreciates my... the movie. Exactly. Right. I passed the test. At least somebody appreciates my bad jokes. <laughs> I exactly. I, I understood it. You hyped it up as like a really good one that you were excited oh, about. So, uh, God. you want to okay. understand my uh, my reaction? I could also say like, you know, documentary filmmaker, video editor, and Egyptian acclaimed Egyptian filmmaker or something. Maybe that would have been the the layup right there. That sounded cool. I feel like I should have done my that. Bias for that. <laughs> I mean, let's just rewind the tape. Let's do it again. You know, forget it. This is... Anyway, Dinah, it's so glad. We're so glad to have you here, Dinah, uh, to talk about Image of Victory. Um, I had not heard of this film before, uh, but I appreciate you picking it. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but this is our first foreign language film on the podcast. So congrats. A lot of firsts this year in 2023. And it's our first, but hopefully not our last Hebrew film. So excellent, excellent. Well, I definitely am impressed that you guys stuck through all the subtitles you had to read. And, you know, this is I'm kind of a San Francisco Jew, you know, New Mexico, but also San Francisco. And this is very much, you know, where I learned to appreciate foreign films. And I don't I don't mind reading, you know what I'm saying? But this is something that I saw at the Israeli Film Festival during the summer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw f uh, the best of the fest. I waited to the end. I saw the best of the fest, a few films, and this was part of the best of the fest. Um, I knew it was going to be great. I found out it was the most expensive film ever made. Yeah, you read that? It was like like in, in Israeli history, Israel. yeah, yeah, in Israeli history. And I thought that was really interesting. Totally. And, you know, what makes it so expensive? Uh, but. Yeah, I'm just so ready to talk about it. I'm just jumping in, but you know, like hey. what what specifically? I'm curious. Like you mentioned all these facts about the film, and and uh, you know, I'm glad that we're discussing it. But like, what specifically made you want to talk about it on the podcast today? Is there anything that stuck out to you when you saw it at the festival that you were like, "Ooh, this is this is something that like sat with me." This actually it it means a lot to me. It's like something I'll never forget. Like in the film. He'll, he has this image of, he has this, he'll never forget this girl, Mira. You know, it's like, I'm never going to forget this film because this past, I don't know if, you know, if you're Jewish, you know what it, what it's been like with anti-Semitism rising. And yeah. after the last, like in May of 2020 or yeah, 2021, when uh, Israel and Palestine were fighting, the, all of a sudden there was this onslaught of, uh, targeted harassment against Jews coming straight from Gaza. Like, I don't know if people know this, but Instagram had actually 
uh, finally figured it out and like took down a bunch of these accounts that were coming straight from Gaza. And I mean, they were just putting like flags, uh, Palestinian flags under everybody's uh, Hanukkah posts or, you know, whatever, just innocuous, you know, different like Jewish holidays. And so that's when I learned about uh, all this propaganda and how uh, there's a hashtag called Pallywood, P-A-L-L. W-O-O-D, Pallywood, like Hollywood, but Palestinian, like basically making up, uh, taking images and telling a story and weaponizing so propaganda. So this film is, so I'm basically been fighting like anti-Semitism online for the last couple of years, like as a full-time job, you know, trying to educate people. And so for me, this is actually a tool and it empowers me because I know that um, as a Jewish person, even though I'm not Israeli, that's my nation and we don't have good PR. And so I just decided it was up to me to be a good spokesperson and to tell people, Hey, you know, this is, you, you got this narrative, but would you like to hear the Jewish Israeli narrative? Like, would you like to hear this side? Because seems like you've picked a side. And this this movie like really shows what I'm really doing, what I'm really up against and how um, in war people use propaganda, how they use uh, images like they could not get in the film there. This guy could not get a, an image of victory during like the war where Israel had to defend herself and these guys. Um, it was a war that was, we didn't pick it. We didn't pick that fight. It was just Israel became a nation. And then we got surrounded by seven Arab armies and, uh, had a bunch of Holocaust survivors with one gun per three fighters and still one, but nevertheless, uh, Egypt could not, uh, it didn't even care if they won. They just wanted an image of victory. Just, right, right. just give us the propaganda so we can show the people that we succeeded in something and we can carry on and we can, they won't even feel the loss. And so what we're dealing with in modern times is very much the same thing. It's just, you can't believe the indoctrination going on with new generations of kids who really should be like out playing football and instead they're in um you know camps to and learning like in unra books they're learning math by counting a you know two one plus one dead jew plus one dead jew equals two j dead jews that's literally in their math book hmm. okay so it's like we're what we're dealing with nobody else in the world would have to deal with this kind of uh you know, double standard and just, it's unbelievable. So, I, right. and I'm Hungarian, like my, my parents, my, my great grandparents and other relatives ended up in Auschwitz. So like, for me, this is real. Like sure. I'm, I'm, I've been a, I've been an American Jew. I've never felt this afraid. And I've grown up with different, I could give you incidents of anti-Semitism, but so I think the one of the reasons why Israel and why I can proudly defend it is that while 
the other side is pumping out propaganda. Israel is spending the most money they've ever spent to its infotainment. This is based on true events. And we're telling our story. And if people are interested in hearing our story, this is a great one. And absolutely. Especially if you're a feminist, if you're a, you know, a lot of strong women in this film, for sure. Like tough, like tough. women. It makes me proud and it makes me feel guilty that I'm also not there pioneering, you know, right. The rest of these women. Um, And so, yeah, it's, it made me proud to just be Jewish and, and to learn this history is so important and Mm -hmm. it's brand new. Yeah, it you just know. came out last year. It's what twenty or two years ago, twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two, something like that. Um, no, it was just I just saw it this past. Oh, summer. really? Okay. Yeah. Wow. I mean, maybe life is going faster than I realized, right. but last oh, I checked, yeah. it was last summer. Yeah. Right. Right. What's so interesting to me about you know everything that you're talking about, and you know obviously these kind of battles that you know still resonate with us, even though this is obviously a period piece. But what's so interesting to me about what you're saying is that. You know, you're you're talking about the movie, the role of this movie in a very meta sense as its own form of, you know, war against propaganda about creating images about, you know, representing what was a very challenging battle in, you know, uh, is, is Israel's history, you know, in this kind of new light. And that's something that this movie, you know, you alluded to it, but is all about propaganda and it's all about creating images. And, you know, we'll get into this when we talk about the plot, but yeah. It's very conscious at every level, you know, what is an image it's creating to the point that I think the movie itself knows what it's doing in its presentation and what it's doing by not only spotlighting, I think, you know, each side making its own justifications and in a way that I think is more balanced in its sympathies, although there obviously are conscious choices, but even in deciding, you know, who's going to be the narrator, what side are they going to be from, where are we going to get more of the, you know, uh, the home life from or the kind of oh, more relaxed yeah. time where are we going to get more of the training from and this this movie is full of very conscious decisions and it's it's so kind of you know almost that. yeah it's, it's almost so in a circle well done, how weird it is yeah. yes 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 yeah i totally see that well we should get into the plot so we could say it you know dinah you're doing my job for me usually i'm the one to kind of like push the show along but i appreciate oh, the enthusiasm <laughs> no totally that's totally fine i think that's good um i have some just facts about the IMD or the Wikipedia. I wasn't sure if you want to do that before or after, just as far as like setting. Uh, Maybe- yeah, why, why don't you uh, hit us with the context corner? Sure. Okay. So uh, before we, Dinah, thank you so much for, for pushing Harry so that I don't have to. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I can finally take Harry, it off. Harry, by the way, he'd appreciate it. <laughs> Everyone could Wait, did he tell you that? Did Hi. he tell you that? We were just talking about names while you were oh, away. At the beginning, oh, but, uh, Harry versus Dina, Harry. Dina, Harry. I'm we're, Daniel. We're both, we're both the victims to people uh, not always pronouncing our names correctly. Right. But well, that's people okay, call me, Daniel. People call me Dan or Danny, and I'm like, haven't been Danny for a long time. But uh, uh, so, yeah, just, you know, according to Wikipedia, for those who are not aware, you know, this this battle, the the film sort of depicts a battle of Nitzanim, which is uh, a battle fought between the Israeli Defense Force and the Egyptian army in the 1948 Arab-Israeli War on June 7th, 1948. Um, it was the first major Egyptian victory of the war and one of the few cases of Israeli surrender. So it's kind of an interesting point that like they chose to make a film where Israel doesn't win, but we'll get into that, I think. Uh, so 33 Israelis were killed during the battle, but the Egyptian media at the time claimed that 300 Jews were killed 
as well as other things like it being the site of a major submarine base and other things. But so kind of touching on what you were saying earlier, Dinah, about like propaganda and, and, you know, the way that the media spins kind of war in general, which will, I have a lot to say about that as we get into it. Tiny little kibbutz. I know. And there were, so like just the idea that, you know, really only 33 people died, but some Egyptian media outlets were saying over 300 Jews were killed because they really wanted that victory. So, yeah. And I I don't know if you were going to touch on this, Daniel, but what I was reading was that it wasn't only Egyptian media outlets, but even in a lot of, you know, from the Israeli war effort, people were Mm -hmm. looking down on this Nitzanim kibbutz and saying, you know, why did they retreat? Why did they give themselves up? Like this was an embarrassment and a failure. And what I read was that it only took an investigation years later to realize that maybe they actually were. Yeah, that and the version I that's reflected in this movie is that they were more than justified in, in retreating because by the point, you know, it was either death or or retreating. And yeah, it's it's another kind of self-conscious act of reclaiming a story. And that that's uh, that's why I think the movie's decision, the director's decision to focus on this specific battle is such an interesting choice and just plays into that whole theme of, you know, how we present the stories of, uh, of war. Absolutely. Yeah. Diana, would you mind telling Harry to read the IMDb summary? Harry? Harry, if you would please. Read the IMDb summary? I definitely can. Inspired by true events in 1948, Hassanim, an Egyptian filmmaker, is tasked with documenting a raid on the isolated kibbutz Nitzanim. When the kibbutz learns of, imp- of the impending army raid, Mira, a young but valiant mother, is forced to reckon with the true cost of war and make an impossible choice. Whoa. That's uh, well done. I feel like, uh, you know, it's, it's not a bad uh, summary. There is, you know, I think... There's no mention of it's Israel. Definitely, it's lacking right? like Jewish or Israeli, right? That's true. Egypt is Jewish sort of the focus. Everything I mean, it's was also conscious, as Harry says. Everything right. was conscious. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Even and not saying it acted like a Jewish uh, senior in high school trying to get into college. Don't put anything Israeli on your application oh is that a thing that's true it's been a while it's a thing so it's like don't put israel on the film more people will watch it oh yeah interesting there's no israeli flag on there is there i'd have to check i forgot what the poster it's like that gold poster but they left it out looking at it now well it wasn't a state yet right like most of the movie starts out with it not being a state so it was still palestine at that that battle so we could give him that it Um, was always a rest israel (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I have I have some other stuff, but I feel like we could probably just save it for the actual plot, like just in general, like wartime media exaggeration and all this other jazz. But maybe we could take a quick break, come back, dive into the plot and kind of talk about these things as they come up into the in, into the plot. Um, so let's take a quick break. We'll be right back and we'll discuss the film Image of Victory. We'll be right back. Some stories are so profound, they transform the people who tell them. I'm Adam Langer, host of The Forward's new seven-part podcast series, Playing Anne Frank. I've been digging into library archives, interviewing actors and writers and designers to bring you a story that hasn't been told before. How the diary of Anne Frank changed the people who brought it to Broadway, Hollywood, and the rest of the world. You can listen to Playing Anne Frank wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Dinah Leffert to discuss the film Image of Victory. My good friend Harry, could you get us started and 
talk about the opening of the film? Yeah, sure. So um, in an opening montage, we meet the famous Egyptian director Hassanin as he reflects on the unforgettable face of his enemy. And we see the image, but we learn later that that's Mira. We then flash back to 1947 when he sent to make a war film showing the Egyptian volunteer effort aiding Palestinian Arabs against the Jewish settlements. Meanwhile, we also meet the kibbutz community of Nitzanim. They're a collection of young families protected by a handful of soldiers from the Gavati Brigade. They're shot at by an assassin, but soon discover that that was just a child who was sent to attack them. Later, they go back to the cafeteria and all sing together. They celebrate the survival of one of their members who was shot. And uh, just to close out this opening scene, uh, Commander Abraham Avraham arrives and he doesn't have a radio, so he's forced to share one with Mira, who's the radio operator for this kibbutz at Nitzanim. And that those kind of opening moments set the stage for uh, the two sides in this uh, in this battle. Oh, yeah, she wasn't letting go of that radio. That was her that was her job. You know, yeah, exactly. she didn't mess around. No, she did not mess around. So, like, did I, she learn how to use the radio from, like, her time in the army? Or was that, like, not a thing? Like, mandated army service? That was, was it a thing in 1947? Or, like, how does she know how to use a radio? It's not, I mean, uh, so, I guess whoever was, like, directing that kibbutz like she there was some type of leadership that put her in right right she was not that it might just look like a radio to to just anybody but to her that was they're in the middle of the desert with not very many things like they Mm -hmm. have their clothes maybe a piano or hall you know food it like having a radio was like having a television in 1950s you know it just so and then also it wasn't just how to use it she knows how to use it but also it's to hear what's going on it's not just to like use it just to listen like what's what's going on i need to know and of course whoever that guy that character that comes in of course a guy is going to come in and be like i'm gonna take the radio you know i got this i got this (laughs) i don't think so Right. Yeah, which which definitely sets up some uh, some chemistry between the two of them eventually. But I did want to jump on what you said also just about the radio. Obviously, it's her way to bring the world in. But, you know, what's a radio? It's a communication device. It's how she shares her story out. You know, we see her often talking to the brigades and trying to share things. And, you know, in that kind of fateful scene, I'm jumping all the way to the end when it's, you know, not communicating clearly. We see how your experience, her experience is distorted. And, you know, I'm, I'm obviously, if it wasn't clear, I'm trying to play into the metaphors we've all been talking about, about, you know, who tells the story, how the story is told. Sure. And, you know, putting this character who becomes the kind of the, the visual to the director, right, to the Egyptian director as like the face of of what this entire battle represented. When we're introduced there, she's also the voice of it, right? She's she's the one who's telling the story, kind of getting her getting their experience, you know, out beyond the world, which ultimately we know from the history isn't as, you know, wide reaching as, as she had wanted to, but it is interesting to have our two main characters on the, um, I would say our two opposing characters on each side be, you know, the radio operator and the oh, camera operator. Yeah. yeah. And also while the Egyptian filmmaker was trying to make a love story happen, a love oh, right. story was organically happening. Right. Right. You didn't yeah. need to. He didn't need to yeah. force it. But uh, I, you know, well, I want that it's forced on the Egyptian side, right? He's really just capturing it. No, sure, yeah, playing out. It, but I think, uh, yeah, I it's think, just. You know, I think it's. I they think were the interested. Just... He was, this poor guy, this poor Egyptian guy, is just trying to be like 
a film buff and make cool films and like he just pulled it to war. That's you know? right. So exactly. he's trying to go back to the his boss and being like, hey, here's um here's some of the war, but like here's my movie. Like these <laughs> two are hot, right? And he's just burn like, it. <laughs> burn it. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I like what you said, though, about how, you know, we get the love story in Mira, but it's kind of like we're saying that the footage is literally burned in the case of, you know, the right. filmmaker. I mean, whenever a, a filmmaker, right, a, a director of an actual movie casts a, a filmmaker, a director as their protagonist, and he really is the protagonist, Hassanin. You know, we meet him in the beginning. He talks at the end. Sure. You obviously have to read in, you know, how the filmmaker is uh, uh, presenting themselves through it. And, and it's so interesting that all this guy wants to do Hassanin is let's capture this love story and he doesn't have the liberty to, but in, you know, and I want to get the name of the director of this movie correctly. Is it, is it Avi Nesher? Do I have that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so when the director Avi Nesher, he is going to keep the, the love story in his movie. And it's funny because, yeah. you know, Daniel and I, we put together a synopsis and while we were writing it, we kind of cut out all the love stuff because I didn't think it was so important for the plot, but we're, we're doing the same thing to him. We're censoring his attempt to say, no, the love story and the people actually do have space in the greater war story. And it's right. better to show every facet of the battle instead of just the, the fighting stuff. So yeah. it's cool how he gets to do what his film, what his stand-in filmmaker in the movie wasn't allowed to do. It's kind of like the Israeli fable means we got a filmmaker within a film, within a, you know, like a movie within a movie within a totally. Anyway, I did want to talk about the, um, I have two points. I wasn't sure which one makes the most sense to talk about. Like he brings up the Why We Fight series by Frank, Frank Capra, which is like these propaganda films. So we could either talk about that now, or we could talk about just the sort of melting pot aspect of the kibbutz in that piano scene. Up to you. Oh. Let's let's go piano scene because let's I think do we've it. Done okay, a lot of the propaganda sure. conversation. All right, so. and look at you I, I censoring like me, too. Harry, huh? <laughs> you asked yeah. me for an option. No, I'm know. kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> so you know, I did want to talk about that piano scene that you mentioned, where we sort of are first introduced to our piano playing uh, kibbutznik, and I just loved the multiple perspectives of this film. You know, as you kind of mentioned before, Harry, it's not like a straightforward like. Israelis kick ass and Egyptians suck. Like we see a very sympathetic portrayal of both sides, but also even within the Israeli side, we have Russian Jewish speakers, we have Spanish speaking Jews, we have Israeli Jews, we have like on the Egyptian side, we have Arab Israelis and we have Egyptians, we have like Holocaust survivors. And I just love that sort of melting pot aspect of this sort of kibbutz. I think it probably accurately reflected what was going on at the time. And, you know, each little click of, of of this each little pod of Jews were like you know making up their own side stories we have a love story with this person and that person and then we have the people who took care of the kids and then the people who are like working in the field and I think it really just weaved like a nice tapestry of like not just showing oh everyone is this Ashkenaz Jew which is like usually how Jews are portrayed um and so, yeah, I, I enjoyed that sort of portrayal. Oh, gosh, can I just jump in really quick? Go oh, for it. Yeah, yeah. When I was at the Israeli Film Festival watching this movie, I could hear somebody in the audience saying, why are they speaking Spanish? Or why are they sound Spanish? You know, and it was like, I just wanted, I couldn't explain to her, like, that's our melting pot. Like, you're right. having this, like, it's this eye-opening look into early Israeli life. <laughs> Yeah. Looking at like how, you know, you have these people coming from all Jews coming from all over the diaspora 
And some of them are live are coming from Argentina. They're coming from um, Spain. They're coming from all over. Mm-hmm. So it's like um, it it's really actually really powerful storytelling because people do just think Jews and Ashkenazi and maybe Sephardic. They've never even heard of Mizrahi Jews. Right. Right. Or better Israel. Like, I think that scene really captures it well. And that's the scene when Ziggy the pianist, he, by for, per his friend's encouragement, he starts playing songs. Well, first, actually, one of the, and presumably, you know, people of a, a Spanish background start singing Bella Chow and everyone kind of gets into it. And it's a very fun song. And, you know, per his friend's encouragement, Ziggy starts playing the piano to it. But then you know, his uh, his friend says, like, make it more fun, you know, make it more what he says, like more modern, like the dance clubs. Like, you yeah, know, you can give imagine, it a little like, the, the jazz clubs of like the right, 40s. Right. And he right. starts adding like some swing to it. And we were just talking about the melting pot of people from different backgrounds, but you yeah. kind of see how even the, their experiences in the kibbutz probably born out of their own backgrounds and who they are. Like you, you start to sense some tension there. Some people are like, this is like too no, fun. No, no, like too we much. are yeah. at war. This is too much. Like just keep it classy. And some people are like, what do you mean? Why can't we get up and dance with each other? And there's like, this there real like culture clash. Well, that was Naomi. And she's kind of like the tough as nails, like Russian in the story, the redhead. And she's like right. very like tough. She's not, she's the one who's throwing sand in that guy's face. She's like, she's like a very, you know, this kind of person. Whereas like these, and even I would say within like the Russians or the Spanish speaking Jews or the Ashkenazi, like they don't cast them all a specific way, right? Like yeah. there are like tough Jews and, you know, loosey goosey kind of more relaxed Jews in all different flavors there. And, and so I kind of like that, that they didn't like, like all the Russians are going to be this way and all the Germans are going to be this way. Like, I think it was nice that they didn't portray them as like one dimensional characters. Um, For but sure. I, I want to ask you a quick question about the Bella Chow thing. Is that a famous song that I don't know? Oh, are you asking me? Anybody? I've never heard that song before. It is a famous uh, song. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's the thing is like, you're, you're seeing into what Israel's really like. Mm-hmm. And you have, I feel like every Israeli movie I see, there's always some kind of rivalry between the Sephardis and the Ashkenazi. Oh, sure. Ashkenazim. You know, it's like the Sephardis seem like they're the cooler, you know, like. We have a chip on our shoulder, I think, from early Israel times. We were not treated so well in Israel, I think. Understandably. But so it's accurate, but it's also like, it's almost like a parody of itself. I'm like, here it comes again. You know, here comes the like this thing that we have. But um and I think one of the, the biggest dynamics that we also see kind of come into the fold, and we don't see it as much there, but especially in some of the later debates are and we've we've alluded to this, but the kind of the the Holocaust experience that, 
you know, many of those Jews had probably directly experienced, you know, a couple of years earlier, like really it, it, it's yeah. unfathomable how fresh it was in their mind. And, you know, we, I was going to reference this later when we get up to it, but there's a scene where someone's, you know, one of the soldiers is taking off their, their clothes and we, you could take us to it, Daniel, but yeah. and we, we see, you know, the numbers tattooed to his arm. And I think Mira kind of clocks it and like acknowledges, you know, what's going on because sure. all of these different backgrounds, it, it's such an interesting situation, this melting pot. It's everyone is kind of forced into this, not forced, but set, everyone kind of joins together in this kibbutz community, but coming from, you know, wildly different backgrounds with wildly different goals, it feels like, you know, all, even though ultimately all of them want the same thing, which is, you know, the state of Israel, a safe haven for Jews and, you know, a place to, uh, you know, to establish a country there. And you get this like undercurrent of the, of the like feminist thing happening. Cause it's like, you know, there's a like, Judaism is pretty much of a patriarchy, you know, it just is and like good or bad. It is like, that's part of what has had us survive. We, we have our dads, we have our, we have our rabbis, we have a, we have a structure, you know, whether you people don't, you know, disagree with it or not, but what happens, what happened in these, these women that came to Israel, it was like, you know, all bets are off, all hands on deck. We all need to work like equally. And so these uh, halal rules are kind of like out the door. And so that's why you see really strong, fierce Israeli women. They're very, uh, you know, I don't, dare I say aggressive. I just mean like, you know, I mean, I could call that, say that to myself and I'm American, but it's like, this is, these were the times where the, where really historically women were uh, standing up for themselves in the kibbutz. Like I will milk the cows. Right. I will not just be in the kitchen or neglecting my baby because I'm so depressed. Cause I really want to be milking a cow. Like it was just, I was laughing too. Cause I'm like, you, you mean your feminism, <laughs> you just want to get out there and milk the cow. All right. Hey, you um, okay. do you, you know, like whatever. It's all good. But no, I get it though. I get sure, it though. Sure, it was sure. just like I could see that strength emerging that like, even though it was just like, I want to get out there and milk the cows, it was like it, in Israel, in that context, it was a man's job and it was having respect. Right. And also, so, like, I want to work. I want to build this country too. Totally. Um if it's okay, I'm going to move the plot along, get to our next beat, if that's right. Oh, Harry's playing. The, he's put, put a card on the field. I almost did that just to annoy you and then say move on. But I will say one quick thing. Please. Which Harry. is uh, Bella Chow is uh, okay. It, it's an iconic song that has a much richer history than I'm going to give it credit for. But what I can say about it is that it, a, well, a remix of it was tied to a recent Netflix show. I think it was Money Heist, that it was like kind of, you know, it was like they they played a remix of this. It was like a big, you know, upbeat version. It got kind of got very popular. So I would say amongst some of my friends, it became a very popular song. And I just wanted to call out that I did use it as the at your wedding. You know, there's this thing where like the couple kind of runs out to, for the first time to like join the dancing as like a married couple, like after the chuppah. There's this kind of you know modern Jewish wedding tradition, and we did run out to Bella Chow. So that Whoa. was uh, so that is a little bit of a personal song to me. So um, I was very excited to see it in this movie. It's always fun when it shows up. 
So that moment. But now you when, can move on. No, yeah. worth stopping for. So that's like the moment when the DJ's like, "Welcome to the floor, Mr. and Mrs." Or how did exactly. it go? Was it Mr. and Mrs. Harry on sauce? We just like went. I think we Harry just went and Jessica Jess? and Harry. Yeah, exactly. Jessica and Harry. Harry. Okay. Yeah. Wow, like what that. a special song. Yeah, maybe wow. we can uh, clip that. I'm sure we have it on film, so maybe we can clip that video in into the show notes or something. You would do that? You no, would put no. Your wedding if anyone's video listening, like... don't look out for it. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll just cut that sequence. Okay, sure. But anyway, no, was... you can take us along. Bella, the plot, ciao, like beautiful hello, be- beautiful goodbye. I should have spent more time learning what it actually means, especially if it was going to feature so prominently at the wedding. But I that, think that sounds so. Right. I thought you were going to come in with like some historical. You know, da 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 da. Nothing. It's just, just like, personal. oh, this is that. Yeah. yeah, and that's what this podcast's all about: our personal connection. Exactly. That's right. Anyways. All right. So let me move on. Thank you. No, that was a good interjection. I appreciate that. Um, so you know, as our film continues, we follow Hassanin and his lovely camera camera operator as they film sort of the Egyptians training. I think they're, you know, oh, that's another thing. We see trainings on both sides, but anyway. We follow Hassanin and his camera operator as they film the Egyptians training. He moves the camera off the action and points it towards the flirty glances of our soldier that we chronicle, Salman, and the village, the woman of the village. Back on our kibbutz, Mira and some of the girls decide to go to the beach. Mira tells Abraham he can use the radio while she's away, and he sends three soldiers with him. As one of the soldiers is undressing, Mira, like you mentioned, Harry, spots a number, sort of a a Holocaust number tattoo on his arm. While swimming, they overhear a truck getting shot at and ambushed by Egyptian soldiers and later discover that Moscow was killed. Uh, The Egyptians celebrate and loot the truck. Hassanin is told to stop filming them as they should only appear as heroes on film and not thieves. Back on the kibbutz, the Israelis have a meeting and confront the soldiers, saying that they're not getting enough protection from the government. In this scene, one of the soldiers justifies their fight, saying, all land used to belong to someone else. We pay the landlord good money. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of where we'll pause here, kind of covering like the beach and the ambush and all that good stuff. But any thoughts on this section? I was like, oh, yeah, that beach scene. The socks, the rubber band, all of it. Right? <laughs> Impromptu bathing suit. Uh, yeah, and also that they were, you know, it's the desert, but you have to remember, like, Israel's on that Mediterranean coast. Mm-hmm. So it's its own, you know, anytime you go to have a beach scene, it's, and there's a guy and three girls, right? Or like he brought them down. I think there were three soldiers and then like a bunch of girls. Oh. But then there was also like another kibbutznik guy, the, the guy who like milked the cows, like because yeah. he's sort of like developing this feelings for Ada, I think. Right, right. right. So right. she's like she's like doing matchmaker. Not only is she like defending the entire kibbutz, but she's also like setting two people up. Remember she like shoves him in the water and she's like, yes. oh, go talk to them. I have to go over here. Yeah. So that's what I was getting at. It was just like setting it up for like a sexy scene. Right. And then of course, of course, it's also setting up this, they're, they're at the beach. Now they're get taking their clothes off. And that's when you're going to hear an, a siren. That's, you know, it's like the perfect storyline setup for, you know, just when they thought they could relax. No, they can't. 
Yeah, th this section really sets up like the sharpest contrast between, you know, it's 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 almost lulled us into comfort. You know, we, we've watched these people, they're singing, they're hanging out. Now all of a sudden we get a beach scene, you almost forget what movie you're watching because you just see right. them, you know, enjoying the beach. And, you know, true to that reality, it's when you let your guard down for a minute. I mean, that's when, you know, one of the more, honestly, one of the most brutal deaths in the whole movie happens. I don't know if you remember that scene. I had to rewatch it. But when when Moscow is kind of surrounded in his in that truck, you know, he's already spun off the road because he's been shot at and you kind of see the Egyptians, you know, closing in on him. Like he just has this like, just, I don't know, this like completely overwhelmed, terrified face on where like he like shows his teeth a little bit. I'm, yeah, I'm acting yeah, it out. Yeah. You can't see it if you're listening, but just like, just pure like, shock and terror and and we see that reverberate through the last scenes you know we just saw that the bella chow scene kind of comes because you know the entire kibbutz is celebrating that one of the people who was shot at you know earlier by that by that assassin we mentioned earlier is kind of he's okay and he recovered and all of a sudden you know after seeing we're coming from such a high to seeing you know actual life of a character that we've seen start to be taken in front of them and it just it it resets you know everyone's perspective you know talk about framing talk about how they think of themselves for a minute they were like this is almost like a vacation. This is like a summer camp where we're all going swimming. And then, you know, it's that it's that jolt back to reality that really caps off this scene, this, you know, this set of scenes that we just discussed and really, you know, reminds you what the movie's all about. Does Moscow die? Do we see him die? Or, or it's mostly implied that he's died because like he's surrounded by all these people? Yeah, I think it's implied. Because he's that's not Mira's husband, right? That's just another guy with like round oh, glasses. Shooting, like he's not going to survive that level. Right. Of... Okay. Okay. Good. So um, he looks like Mira's husband. Yeah, he does kind of I like they both have up, like yeah. big like you know Einstein hair and like the round glasses kind of. Anyway, um, I was just going to say like not relating to the the grim stuff, you know, but mostly just the interpersonal dynamics. Like this is kind of where we set up some of these like love scenes and like. You know, I just think it's it's lovely that like you get to know the people a little bit more. I feel like if you think about other war films, like I'm I'm thinking about this film as a war film compared to like Top Gun, which is a war film that just recently came out. It's like in the consciousness, in the zeitgeist now, but like Private Ryan, like we don't know much about their personal lives or whatever, because there's not maybe like not a female presence in the film. It's like the Battle of Normandy and everyone dies and blah, blah, you know. But we're mostly like in in the battle of it, which is really for this film, it's really like the last 20, 30 minutes of the film. A lot of it is kind of like leading up to it. So I think like getting to know the characters a lot more makes their untimely deaths at the end much more difficult to uh, to stomach. I guess it's a long way of saying that. But I just I just like that, you know, we're we're developing relationships with these people and getting to know them quite a bit. Yeah, and it's almost like we're, it's what it's like to be on a kibbutz. I mean, right. you have more time than anything else. You don't, you know what I mean? Time is in abundance. Sure. You might not have enough food. You might not have enough of like all the little things. Somebody, somebody might come in every once in a while with a little piece of chocolate. They came in from Tel Aviv. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. they, they have very little, but they have time and they have, and they have a lot of work on their hands. But what do you do? You chat, you chat it up, you bond, you talk about things, you develop connections and attachments. And so the the storytelling that as you were saying, Harry, that uh we it's very uh what did you say? What was the word you used? Um conscious choices. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that very was meta. that was a conscious choice too. You know, the director wants to put us what it's like 
on a kibbutz and you have time on your hands and you have work and you have dynamics. That's all right. that is all day long. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's everything. And I'm realizing it now more, and this, this could have been more obvious, but I'm just realizing it's everything that, you know, Hassani and that as a filmmaker that he's asking, he's like, I can't just tell the, the I don't want to make propaganda. I want to tell the whole story. I right, want to show right. the attraction between characters. I want to show, you know, even the failures and we get plenty of them on the, I mean, this scene we're talking about is a failure on the, you know, the Jewish side, they failed to protect this, this soldier. And it's just like everything that he's, he's telling us that this movie is so knowing, but you know, he's just telling us through the mouth of Hassani like exactly what he wants to show. And I think when we flash to the Egyptian side, you get some of that and you really get it through the voice of Hassanin, you know, just as a character, if he's going to be the one, again, like I said, representing the filmmaker, representing Avi Nesher, if he's the one that's really pushing for empathy and humanity, I mean, that in a lot of ways really humanizes, humanizes like the Egyptian side and gives them that kind of, I mean, the, the real moral center of the film to a certain extent. But at the same time, I'm thinking about, you know, the kind of the, the village and community scenes that we really get on the Egyptian side. And ultimately the movie whether consciously or not is kind of guilty of that same thing that you know that they're, they're not that it, the movie itself is not letting Hassanin do it's like it's not giving us everything from that side right we do get to see the love story a little bit we do get those scenes later you know maybe, maybe it does a little you're more. saying on we the Egyptian get, side on the Egyptian side yeah we yeah get it's the a little where kind of playing cards and exactly right. but it's clearly right if, if there was a ratio it's like you get 30 percent there and 70 percent need sun name like it's clear right you know where we're going to get to see the full human experience and that's on the Israeli side. Yeah, I mean it is an Israeli film so I get that, but I I do feel like a little bit more about like the general on the Egyptian side who, you know, uh his name is the general on the Egyptian side, I believe his name is Khalif. Like a little bit more about him would have been great cuz like what's his motivations? Why are why is he fighting so hard to, you know, is he just wanting a victory so that he can look good for the king or something like that? It, you know, that's what it feels like. He, I think, is ultimately reduced to the kind of he becomes like that almost guy. the central villain. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and that obviously culminates in the end, which we'll get to. But they like there's a case that could be made. It's for, you know, the propaganda team. The king of Egypt are like the antagonists of the movie. But on the ground level, it, it, it sure. becomes Khalif more than anyone. Yeah. He has more bad guy vibes. I feel like he's dressed in all black. He looks a little bit mischievous and, you know, deviant. it's interesting. Yeah, you're reminding me, you compared this movie to Top Gun, you know, Top Gun Maverick. And, you know, I guess it's not really a spoiler for a movie. Well, that's what you were comparing it to, Daniel, that comes out I'm here. Saying and that's it's a, a war that, film, right? But it's like, go of ahead. Of course. But, but well, the one point I was going to make is that's a movie that very consciously doesn't show any enemies at all. And it actually leaves I've the enemies nameless. They, oh, so I'm not going to spoil too much. But everyone knew that this was a choice. Like, instead of, you know, the way that and people compared it to like a lot of Tom Cruise, there's been a lot of Mission Impossible movies and the way some of the earlier ones might of focused on a specific region and maybe people from a certain country uh -huh. you know this was a movie that was meant to really glamorize one side without even touching on the other so they talked vaguely about oh the you know the enemy is enriching uranium to create bombs or whatever but we don't get a lay of the region we don't know who the enemy is and that's a movie that like in some ways can be called propaganda in the oh, sense totally. that it doesn't it doesn't attempt at all to humanize but it doesn't villainize to a certain extent maybe this movie does more villainizing of its enemy than that one does but that movie has a very different relationship with the but, other the way but that this you movie know, does the conscious part of what he did though is he started the film with the peace treaty you know right, he right. It, this like, film you're saying it, 
Yeah, it opens uh, up. Yeah, 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 We're yeah. in an Egyptian home. We're in the filmmaker with his wife, and it pops. And this up. is in like the 1960s 70, or something. Seventy nine, I think. Yeah, so it's like it's after so it the fact because they're right. so they're going back in time. You know, they're starting after the fact, and so mm -hmm. he's blaming himself because the king is like, "Oh, whoops, we never even needed to go to war anyway." Um, right, right. Well, if we didn't need to do that, what was what right. was I doing? The people are going to blame right. me, and so you see um, the pitfalls of being someone who makes propaganda too. Yeah, it's it's right. interesting. Like, uh, yeah, that's good to point out. Like, he almost feels like, "What was the point of what I did?" If you signed a peace treaty for it, like, yeah, totally. Um, Harry, do you want to jump on to the to the next uh, section? Sure, I'll get us uh, moving along in the in the plot. So. We go to the Egyptian side where things have quieted down and we see Hassanin and he's gotten bored waiting for an attack to film. So, you know, we get the sequence. He starts looking out towards Nitzanim. He starts, you know, sympathizing towards the enemy a little bit more. And he even spends more time capturing the Egyptian love story that uh, he was told not to really take before. But um, the propaganda team, you know, he sends the footage to the pro propaganda team back in Cairo and they're very upset with what they've been sent. They want to see more war. So they have the king send the volunteers, more soldiers so that they can capture more aggressive action. Um, in Nitzanim, the Israelis, we have a great scene we should definitely talk about where they celebrate Pesach. They sing uh, Dayenu, I think is the, the Pesach song that they sing, and uh, then start to gradually move towards their bunkers to prepare for a battle. So we go back to the Egyptian side where we see them mobilizing to attack, and they engage in a little bit of a skirmish, but eventually the Egyptian side retreats after the Israelis set off a bomb. Um, Hassanin then witnesses the injured Egyptians crying out. He walks through the kind of uh, the medical tent as they're all uh, being nursed. And uh, he he mourns the lost hope of, he talks about the uh, the shepherds that had thought that they were going to return to their old lands. And he mourns that, you know, what, what they had hoped for. Um, finally, they send this footage back to the king. And he, this is when we mentioned this earlier, but he decides to have all of the footage burned because between, you know, the lost battle and the love story and everything he didn't want to capture, he decides this doesn't do what he wanted it to do. So he, uh, he has it burned and he decides to send a real team of soldiers to finally help the Egyptian effort, um, and continue the fight. I was thinking, what what scene is that? I feel like I digress so much. We're only at the beginning scenes. <laughs> well, it's a long movie for those who are, yeah. you know, for those planning to watch it. It's like, I think, two and a half hours. Is that right? I feel like this podcast, you should watch the movie and then listen to this podcast. Oh, I mean, we always recommend that. But yeah. if people want to skip it. But uh, we are, we always prepare for people. So spoilers. We, we throw some water. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think that, you know, you know, we have... Hassanin getting his feedback from the propaganda team, which is kind of a bummer. And we have yeah. like the Seder, which is cool to see on film. We always yes, love a yeah. Seder. Yeah. Um, no, um, there's, yeah. So when people say things like uh, representation matters, um, it does. You know, when you see somebody, when you see Jewish culture being mirrored back to you, it fills, it just it fills me with, it just, op it warms my heart. It opens everything up. I'm like, I belong somewhere. I belong. This is, this is where I belong. This is my tribe. These are my people. I'm, I'm from a people. I have a nation. Like it is like very empowering. Yeah. It, it is nice to sort of see traditions and, and things that you do like 
I didn't serve in the Israeli army, but I have had a Seder before. And like, so sort of seeing that connection on screen is certainly, it's always good to see like a Seder. And Harry, how are we on melodies? Would you approve of that melody? I was going to say, yeah, like it was a very familiar tune to me, you know, and I don't yeah. know. I, I know this is a very popular tune. I'm sure there are others, but that classic Diana tune, which hopefully we can, you know, link into, sure. we can loop in here. But um, but yeah, like I, I totally agree with everything you were saying, Diana. It wasn't just getting to see this experience. You know, we see a lot of the tokenization in a lot of Jewish films where they're like, look, Seder, see, like we we had the set decorator get matzah and put it on the table. Like we know right. what this is. But they yeah. didn't even do so much to that. It just, it was a lot of people in a room together singing Diana together in a way that it felt both exciting to see and also very familiar. And uh, yeah. And and I definitely got me thinking about the ways that that specific song choice, Dayanu, and really the entire you know Egyptian oh, yeah. I mean, literal Egyptian right. Exodus story mapped onto this movie. Which Interesting. I could yeah. let someone else take it, but there's there's a lot of ways that we can talk about you know how that was a very particular choice to feature that song and a Pesach Seder in this movie. Sure. Well, to like a Jonah party. Hill would have watched this movie before he made you people. It would yeah. be, we wouldn't have we wouldn't come off like wasps. In his, you know what I mean? Totally, like, totally. What, what was even on the table? Like, yeah, lots yeah. of reason on the wrong holiday. Yeah, no, it, it, totally. Like this, I, this is yeah. You can you can take it, Daniel. No, I, I mean you you basically handed it to me on a silver platter, Harry. That's I mean, I like I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I like this idea that you're saying that you know we're dealing with Egyptian enemies both in the Passover story and over here in our in our story that we're we're watching right now and just sort of seeing you know uh the Jews getting leaving a certain area or having to to get kicked out of a certain area or something like that but then also like on the flip side like we were saying having it be like this balanced portrayal you also hear from like the shepherds who are like oh we don't get our land back so like on one hand you're you're sympathetic for the kibbutznik people who are you know without a without a place or under attack and then on the other side you know we see uh i think it's in this section or maybe in the previous one where we see all the wounded soldiers and we see like a similar scene in both like there's a lot of parallels there's training scenes for both there's like wounded scenes so i think this like i said before i think this film does a very good job of portraying the ugliness of war you know how like the people, the soldiers sometimes are children on the Egyptian side there, you know, the sniper was like a very small child. These, these young people who have young families, they're, they're not soldiers, but they're being, you know, put up their back against the wall and they have to fight. So it's like, you know, on some hand, on one hand, like the Egyptians want to glorify war, but the reality of the situation is it's just, it's an ugly thing. And it's uh yeah. In a way you're bringing up the Nakba. So it's like, we're getting attacked like their Nakba is us getting attacked by seven Arab armies out of nowhere when we just declared ourselves a, a country. And the Egyptian leaders told the Arab villagers that to leave to it's it's not going to be they made up a bunch of lies about the IDF. The ones that left were told very specifically by these specific leaders in this you know, what this film portrays historical events that you need to leave for your safety and you can come back when every Jew is slaughtered and you'll 
you'll have, you'll take all of their things and you'll have more than when you left. This is what they, this uh, leader, these leaders in Cairo were telling them. Got it. So when you see, you know, the filmmakers trying to do a good job to trying to show you, like, you know, they're upset. They're not getting their land back. So as you know, as our film progresses, both our Israeli uh, folks are listening to it on on Mirror's radio, I believe, or maybe another radio, and the Egyptians are watching it on television. But they listen to David Ben Gurion announce the declaration of the state of Israel. Israelis are cheering, and we cut to the Egyptians, and they're just like sobbing and and mourning and stuff like that. Uh, in response, uh, Egyptians they drop bombs in Tel Aviv, and the Egyptian commander asks the filmmakers to film him as he proudly declares the beginning of the end of the colonies. Meanwhile, Nitzanim is told they have to evacuate women and children. Most leave, but Mira and Hadassah and some of the others stay behind. The kibbutz has a scare where they see a line of tanks moving towards them. We learn that they ultimately pass Nitzanim to attack Tel Aviv. However, due to poor planning, and I think the fact that like Tel Aviv blew up a, a critical bridge, the Egyptian effort is considered a major failure. The king retreats his soldiers, and then commands them to get one final, like you said, Dinah, an image of victory before returning to Egypt. So that way that he can you know, show out to his to, to the people who watch the propaganda that they, in fact, have, have won this war. We're setting up for this sort of the last, our last battle here. So I kind of want to pause before we get into our sort of final scene with all the tanks and everything, just kind of like gearing up for the battle and all that kind of stuff, if there's any thoughts, and also about the establishment of the state of Israel, things like that. Yeah, I, I think that announcement scene and the way that that is filmed, like you were saying, kind of in parallel, we see the Egyptians reacting and the uh, Israeli side reacting. It, I think it adds just another layer to what this entire movie is about, which is, you know, framing presentation propaganda. And I think on one side, we've, we've spoken about creating those images and how that, that story is told. And I think in this sequence, we really get a, a picture of how it's received and how that same exact news, and it's not even like, as far well, I assume they are listening to a, the Egyptian side is probably listening to a translation. But oh, yeah. even so, you get the sense that they're they're both watching the exact same thing and reacting so strongly opposed. Right. And I think this movie, you know, does its job to kind of say it, it it puts in the mouth, you know, the justification like you were talking about Daniel in that scene about the uh, the shepherds, you know, mourning their lost land. And then of course you had, I mean, literally in the mouth of, of an Israeli soldier or one of the soldiers at the kibbutz just saying like. You know, this is how it works. Like we crawled out of the of the gas chamber, as he said, like, you know, we like all land, if you go far back enough, belong to someone else. But we, you know, have this land now. We've we're, he says we're paying like the uh, the landlords, basically. And like this movie does a good job at, you know, it, it doesn't give people I don't think it gives each side this sort of equal claim. And it definitely goes a long way to incriminate, you know, both sides and probably the Egyptian side more so than the Israeli side and, and really almost exclusively the, the Egyptian side in a lot of the atrocities that it enacts, especially as we're setting up this final sequence where it literally is just an, like, let's just kill some more people for the sake of creating an image so that we don't walk away as failures. Like it's clear what the movie is showing you about, you know, in the lead up to this final scene and who you're supposed to be sympathetic to. You also talked about the scene with the, uh, I forget his name, but the the kind of head of the Egyptian volunteer effort when he says, like, get this on camera. Like, I want you to see end of the colonies. And he's like smiling. Like, that's a real villain moment. So Khalif, this movie, uh, the general. Yes, exactly. Khalif, Khalif, yeah. So this movie is definitely showing you both sides there. But it's just interesting how the, these events are playing in parallel. And the movie always is making sure you're aware that 
all of these events are impacting soldiers and civilians on both sides. And we get a little bit of a glimpse into just, you know, how devastating this has been for, you know, both sides. Because really, this is this is a war. There are no winners. That's kind of the uh, where the movie's going with it, I think. I mean, I'm just thinking about how the those lies, how, how much those lies really cost the people. Right. Just to this day, how much it's costing everyone. Egypt jumped in the fight to help their Palestinian brothers. All these countries that have fought Israel are, it's all to like help their Palestinian brothers. But it's like, if you really want to help, war is not the answer. We're, it's like, get to know us. We're, get, step inside our kibbutz, get to know us. And we're going to make really great neighbors. This is like totally unnecessary. And all these lies, it's just so many lies. I'm really just left with how, you know, these leaders and their propaganda and their lies and their like egotistical need to show a, a victory and, and just how many lives that just costs innocent lives of, you know, so that they're, they can sleep at night. I mean, actually, I think one of that didn't that king get killed after this? Oh, did he? The Egyptian king? Yeah. So it's like he had to really like these kings, they're not infallible. Like they will, they, you know, they, he, ha, he was also fighting for his survival. You know, those no need to drop extra bombs after the war is over um, in Tel Aviv, but like, that's what he was doing so that he uh, could maybe spare himself being killed. But I don't think it saved him. I think this, these scenes were particularly tough for me because like this is sort of the beginning of their attacks. So like I believe, you know, that initial attack maybe is happening at night. And that's when a lot of the, the children are trying to evacuate. There's that one scene where where uh, Ada or Hadassah are inside the like the nursery with the kids and like there's bullets flying above her and she's just trying to like keep the kids quiet and they're like trying to mix powder so that they'll have some sleeping, you know, so that they'll fall asleep, so that they I mean it's all it's all pretty brutal. Like we're saying, like nobody wins when there's a war. You know, really, as they're preparing, we have these like sort of preparatory scenes where everyone's kind of like digging trenches and they're training throughout and they're, you know, setting up like traps and all that kind of stuff. And we're really sort of preparing for this final showdown because, you know, th through some intel, I think they're, I think Mira is speaking at this point. She's speaking Pig Latin uh, in Hebrew, which was very confusing and trying to understand that. She's speaking Pig Latin to the uh, to the soldiers to kind of report back. And also get some intel and ask for backup because I think they were asking for backup, but they didn't know if it was an SO. Oh, no, that's later. But yeah. anyway, I'll, I'll let you get to it. But I thought that was kind of a, you know, that's an right. interesting like, method. World yeah. War II, we had the Navajo Code Talkers, mm -hmm. right? And then for on the American side, and then is Israeli an Israeli woman was this that's that part was historically accurate. She oh, was, nice. Okay. I didn't know that. Big Latin as code, you know, so that what what will these there, you know, what could they what could we, how could we speak in such a way that they won't know what we're saying? And um 
she probably came from America because I think I'm pretty sure Pig Latin was, you know, an American, you know, every girl, every girl worth her salt in middle school knew Pig right. Latin. I mean, so maybe it came that. from Israel. Who knows? Maybe Pig Latin got exported from Israel. Never, and, never. It's not no, no, probably not. <laughs> Good call. Exactly. Good call. You know, uh, later that day, the Egyptian forces returned with artillery, tanks, soldiers, and armored vehicles. They clearly outnumber the Israelis, and they proceed to attack Nitzanim. They hit them with bombs and then slowly move in for a close-range shootout. Uh, like we mentioned, Mira attempts to send out an SOS for help, but the radio isn't working. They say there's sand in there. She kind of we see a scene from the other side where it kind of gets through to the radio operators, but because they can't be certain, they they're not sure if it's you know deceptive, if it's the enemy trying to fool them. So they decide you know not to act, which is just kind of that barrier to communication. Like I'm going off script right now, but just that same what we were talking about earlier about you know the inability to tell your story and why right. this event was remembered so you know poorly, even by Israeli media for so many years afterwards. But after suffering major casualties and a failed attempt to uh, retreat, Commander Avraham comes in, he waves a white flag. While he's standing in front of the Egyptian soldier, a, a bunker bomb detonates behind him and the uh, trigger-happy General Khalif um, shoots Avraham dead. So Mira then expresses first anguish and then you know puts together that, that, that iconic smirk that we saw in the beginning that was captured you know on film by uh, Hassanin and she kind of smirks before pulling out her gun and killing that general um, before being ultimately shot dead herself. Spoiler. Spoiler, exactly. Spoiler. If, if you made it this far, <laughs> this is what happens at the very, very end. Although the movie ends, we we get, you know, we, we meet Hassanin again. He he basically says in voiceover that he had started at the beginning of the movie that, you know, the king got what he wanted, the eponymous image of victory. The Egyptians present a propaganda video that exaggerates the victory. Like we said, it lies about the numbers. And it even, you know, through a little editing trick falsely implies that the king himself happened to be there, right? They say they, they sort of splices him in as if it was, you know, an effort that he led. And uh, eventually we just learn with the outcome of the war, those, you know, the, the surviving Israelis are taken prisoner. And at the end of the war, um, they are swapped for Egyptian prisoners and kind of everyone goes back their own way. But um, but yeah, but around there is is where the movie ends. She comes out, she shoots, knowing that she's going to be shot. She knows what's going to happen. The profundity of that moment, like we can't actually get what was exactly in her mind. But it's like the Mona Lisa. She's like the Mona Lisa Lowski. Mira. Mira, Mira, the Mira Lisa. So, so we don't really know, but we do know that she has a child. That it's a choice. She didn't have to be heroic. She didn't have to be a hero. You know, she knows that's Kibbutz life. She knows that one of these other women has her and men has her son. She knows the tribe has her son, but it's still, it's a sacrifice nonetheless. So her her heroism lies in the fact, and that smile is connected to it, that she knows what she's gonna do, and it just comes over her like she's she's already in a relationship with God in that moment. Hashem is already she's 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 already smiling in Hashem's face, knowing that that her her doing what she did furthers the Jewish people. I wanted to kind of. Piggyback on what you were saying. When we're seeing Hassanin in his in his living room at the end, he says, like in VO, I think, 
says, no parting is more difficult than a mother from his child. Take my life and grant me eternal life, eternal glory, a deal with death. Like, I thought that was really, as he's looking at the picture, like, you know, she did give her life, but now she has, she is living on eternally as this sort of hero in the battle. But unfortunately, she had to make sacrifices of her life, robbing that child of a mother, which is, it's a tough deal to make. It's incredibly tough to do that. And I think as a filmmaker, he kind of gets what he wants. She was protecting her child. Right. Right. She says, you go, I'll take, like, I'll hold down the fort, which, and she even told her husband, her husband was away in Jerusalem, I think. So already the family was separated, right? He was like driving supplies and stuff like that. So we do see the husband who made it through at the end on the other side, but it's incredibly difficult to make that kind of sacrifice. I think by orders of magnitude, way less difficult for Hassanin at the end, who ultimately just had as an editor, he just had bad feedback from his client, you know, like the client just like recut his masterpiece, but he came out alive. You know, it's funny that like throughout the film, everyone is getting bloodied and cut and whatever. And he like rolls in in like his jacket and his scarf. And he looks very like polished as the filmmaker, not a, not a speck of dust on him. He comes away kind of able to say that he made this film, this amazing propaganda film, but he kind of has to like live with all the atrocities that he saw, none of which really ended up the human side of it, none of which ended up really in that film. He, yeah, you see his sacrifice. He sacrificed for his his people too. Right. And, you know, he was just trying to be a filmmaker. I mean, he was, you know, he was trying to make romance, not films, you know? And he ends up in this war, doing war propaganda. And for in the end, for his own, the, his own government to make him look like a fool and even put his life at risk for what he was putting out there. I mean, he think he comes away as much as he didn't like the the final cut of his movie. I feel like he got acclaim for it, right? He like was lauded as this person who like created these amazing propaganda films for the king and showcased all this like amazing victories and, and glory. He didn't know that in a moment. No, no, know no. sure, sure, sure. Lauded. He thought yeah. that he was going to be deep lauded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I find it so interesting that he's so moved by that. That's smirk by Mira, you know, which is something yeah. that I think we can understand it. And he doesn't have the same relationship with Mira that we do. You know, we know so much more about what's motivating right. there. And I think, you know, protecting her children or really honoring them and kind of fighting back to preserve them and to protect her people. Like, that's all something that I think is, is true to her that we've gleaned from watching the rest of the movie. What I, what I think is so powerful about that scene is that, you know, for Hassanin, like, he, he's never actually seen her. And I think for him, it unlocks, like... I have been fighting against or I've been part of an effort to fight against the kind of un, unnamed villain for this entire time, you know, unnamed enemy. And all of a sudden, like, I think that smile is so much more effective than if she like cried out or something, because I think if that happened, he'd be like, I get it. You know, people are scared when they know that they're outnumbered, they're going to die. I think the fact that she was able to claim power in that moment of her death and smile like she had done something. I think more than it told him things, I think it just told him what he didn't know about her. And he was just like, what about the whole story? Do I not get? Because even in my own, you know, attempted balanced version, although obviously he knows what he's doing is propaganda ultimately, right. like he didn't capture the other side. And I think, again, as a sort of meta text on the on the success of the movie itself, if the movie itself cast one of the sides, you know, and, and especially this coming from an Israeli filmmaker had cast the Egyptian side as kind of this, on this faceless villain, like this faceless enemy, I don't think you can get the whole story and then you can't escape those claims of it being its own version of propaganda. You know, the way that Top Gun Maverick, like we spoke about was like, 
he's that that final scene feels like not just and again this is the director levels but doesn't just unlock for Hassan in this this kind of desire to show the whole story but it's why Avi Nesher probably decided like how I can't show this battle without showing at least a little bit into what both sides were doing what they were thinking where this was coming from because war is inherently dynamic and you it, it can't be polarizing it can't just be one narrative and, and that's kind of that sends you down the path here also, the smile comes from she knows that by virtue of being a woman and stepping out there, and that's your that's your image of victory. We all know the the rules in war. You don't people don't want to see. Even the mob had a better code of ethics. You don't right. kill women and children, right? Yeah. And so she right. she's smiling, knowing that you know you're gonna shoot me and you're gonna look terrible to the world, right? Right. She sees the camera, right? Like she knows that it's going to be right. captured. And I assume it didn't make it into the final yeah. edit, if I had to knows, guess. She knows what a f- epic failure it is on their part. Totally. And, and she already, even though she's losing her life, she 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 knows she's died a winner. It's interesting that like he has her picture in a book in his room. And that's where she lives on in eternity for him. But it clearly, like we're saying, did not make it into the movie. And this is his like personal scrapbook of the, his films. Probably learned his first Jewish word of chutzpah. Kept looking at it like she really had chutzpah. Oh, gotcha! Yeah, he got it. Totally. <laughs> We're making Israel. I better learn these words. It kind of reminded me, like, of that. You know that photo, the migrant mother from the Dorothea Lang, like that Dust Bowl mom who kind of has just like this like worried look on her face. It's like an it's a very like iconic photo, and I don't know, just seeing that smirk. We also, you know, like we said, Mira Lisa also, the Mona Lisa, but, you know, just sort of it's such an iconic thing. Here's the real photo. See the iconic movie smile pic. Right. But what about the real? Well, it was based on true events. So I guess there's probably. Oh, you're thinking yeah, that maybe not- there is like a true photo of this woman. Yeah, we should try to find the real photo of this woman. Oh, that'd be interesting. I'm going to look for that because I feel like if it's based on true events, there's. And he obsessed over this woman. I don't right. know what, you know, it's based on true events. So maybe that part's made up, but maybe there is worth looking. Another thing not related to the photo, maybe I'll scrap my earlier rant and save it for this one. Cause I did like the callback to the piano, like Ziggy getting back on the keys again, like one last hurrah, like they know they're all going to die. And like Naomi and Chaim finally get together after the whole, will they, won't they throughout the film. And she finally is like, all right, I'm done treating you like a piece of shit. I will dance with you. And I thought that was very touching. Kind of like, you know, the ship is sinking and like the orchestra is playing. It's that sort of vibe where like they know they're going to die. They might as well just like, enjoy this guy it. definitely saw Titanic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the band keeps playing. That's right. So I thought that was touching. You know, it's like uh, very, like, like I said before, nobody wins when there's a war. Both sides suffer. And, you know, to see those human moments in between all this like war, I think really added so many levels of humanity to it. So I really did appreciate that. But uh, that was our summary of the film, Image of Victory. So let's take another quick break. We'll come back and we'll rate the film on a scale of one to five stars of David with our guest, Dinah Leffert. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. This week we're discussing Image of Victory, and now we're up to the point in the show where we're going to give it a rating of one to five stars of David based on the cast and crew, content, and themes of the movie. So, Daniel, why don't you get us started this week? 
Sure thing. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, this is kind of a unique film in that it's our first Israeli, you know, film. Uh, so first foreign language and first Hebrew film. Um, so in terms of the cast and crew, one would assume that all of our Israeli characters, our director is Jewish and he also wrote it, but all of our Israeli cast is, is Jewish. I would assume most of the Egyptian cast is not Jewish. I can't confirm that, but I would say more than 50% of our cast is Jewish. Um, in terms of the content, it is a story, you know, ripped from the pages of Israeli history and Egyptian history. So it's a, it's a pretty historical, uh, historically relevant and significant event. And, you know, in terms of the themes for me, I think there's a lot in there that we kind of touched on. I'm trending upwards, a lot of high, high numbers on my end, but I don't want to tease my rating just yet. Dinah, how about yourself? How'd you think about this film? Well, I recommended it because I already gave it a five out of five stars of David for all the elements. I'm, I feel proud to promote it. You know, it doesn't, it, you know, it, in these times, people don't have the patience for, you know, uh, foreign language films and mm -hmm. having it is just sometimes a little bit asking too much from people. But once you get past that, um, you just watched a really incredible film with 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 such a such a teaching tool. You know, just the way it's told, the narration coming from an Egyptian filmmaker. It just feels really well balanced, mm -hmm. and that could be our own prop Israeli propaganda to just like make that choice. It's coming from the Egyptian side, so you can trust it. You know, right. I don't know. Oh, okay, gotcha. I mean, interesting. Yeah, to be fair, I don't know. We're 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 looking at it. You know, I'm just trying to be fair, but I think it's incredibly relevant. You know, as a female, I love a good strong female heroine and. What else about it? That's a five out of five. Yeah, I mean, it would be great if, if it could teach me Hebrew while I'm watching it and I could stop reading. You know, other than that, I would have gave it six out of five. No, I'm just kidding. Right. Um, yeah, I'm just I just think it's an important film to watch and it's just really well made. And I also want to promote a lot Israeli films to begin with, like just once you start seeing a couple of them and you see what high quality quality great filmmaking is coming out of israel man you just start wanting to watch all of them and you start seeing like the similar actors you're like oh i really like that guy from uh the beauty queen of jerusalem and he's in this one too you know the uh allah uh i forgot his last name but he's one of my favorite actors now he's an arab guy he's an arab israeli i just absolutely adore him he's a such a great actor and yeah there's just a lot to this it was an important film and it was historically accurate so a lot of a lot of levels of goodness coming from this film you have romance you have you know when things are like sparing and like in war and just the camaraderie of the people and everything they have to do it with so little you know there's just something really satisfying about watching people be successful with so so little that's a very solid rating. Harry, five out of five for you. Harry, where are you at with this film? Um, I'm I'm not sure. You know, I'm thinking about how like Jewish it is and then you know what that arbitrary metric is. And it's interesting to apply it to, I mean, even just an Israeli story, because there's a Jewish context that, you know, is not true of obviously everyone who's living in Israel in, in modern times, but especially that Jewish 
colonization movement that kind of began with the settlement era. It, it really was about reclaiming a Jewish state. So there's something, it's not just that we're watching a war scene. You, you can never forget that this war is being fought over, you know, the Jewish right to their to, to our homeland. And like that is such a, you know, pronounced Jewish theme, even if they're not reminding, even if the movie itself is not reminding us of that throughout it. And it is, it is a little bit. And it talks about, you know, the relationship to the Holocaust and, and you know, how they kind of move there and about, you know, what this means for all of these people. But um, but that and that that feels like context more than it it always does the text, but it, it's certainly there. You know, I, I think that this movie is it doesn't have so much Jewish practice. I mean, the the Seder scene is, is really significant, you know, the singing Dayenu, but yeah. beyond that, a lot, a lot of their cultural exchange, you know, happens around music and not necessarily Jewish songs, more sort of cultural songs, and you know, a lot of like the flirting and the relationships are it's not always grounded so explicitly in Jewish content in, in Jewish like practice, practice yeah. which, which the story doesn't need to be, you know, what, what's so remarkable about a lot of these movies and we talk about representation all the time is that it's so cool to see Jewish characters just being able to be normal people have the same, you know, family drama and, and uh, social. And like, you know, there's this whole subplot that we don't even talk about so much about, you know, these two people kind of being attracted to each other and finding love. And like, it is so powerful when a movie is able to tell all those stories and not have to reinforce every step of the way that it's, uh, that it's Jewish. But, um, uh, but even so, it just, it, it doesn't reinforce it. And I don't see all that explicit Jewishness. And even in the, you know, thematically, I think there's so much that we can glean. There's a lot of, you know, biblical comparisons we could talk about. I mean, certainly to the Egyptian Exodus story. And even if, you know, they're ultimately not successful by the end of this, we know, and the movie reminds us that in the greater context, we we obviously, you know, the Israeli side wins the war. And that's, you know, again, fitting with, with the, uh, the Exodus story and all the biblical themes there. But I still think that there's so much thematically about representation and propaganda and perspective that, that to me felt like its own kind of end instead of, you know, something that maybe with more thought I can turn into a, a more Jewish thing. But, you know, because the movie didn't, I wasn't thinking this is like the Jewish, you know, culminate. Well, this is just like the, you know, uh, apex of Jewish presentation in every scene in a way that I think I have with some other movies, it's going to be hard for me to go up to a five. I'm if we're given numbers now, which I think, uh, you know, I know Dinah yeah. already has, I don't know if Daniel you have yet, but I'm thinking close to a four, you know, and I think just the four there, like I, I, it's not to say that this isn't Jewish and it's not that this isn't screaming Jewish. And I think context alone gets you up to three and a half. And then, you know, all the Dianu and all those scenes kind of pull me to four, but um, but just just trying to put this in context of some of the other movies that really are like a manifesto, you know, for or with you know the Jewishness of of its characters. Like maybe I'm just maybe I'm taking for granted how much context there is, and maybe someone watching this without the same Jewish background and the same familiarity with Jewish films as I have might look at this and say like, "Wow, this was so cool to see this Jewish war fought." And I've you know heard versions of this story and seen a lot of this enough times, but. But uh, yeah, I, I think I could have seen some of it more explicitly, but I'm still going to give it, you know, a four, which is obviously a very, very high ranking for us. So, uh, so Daniel, where do you where do you fit in there? It's stern but fair. I will accept that rating, Harry. I feel like um, I might pu- push back a little bit, and you know, our podcast listeners love when we argue and disagree about things. I think it's like it might just be like histor- maybe historically accurate to the time in that, like maybe a lot of these early Israeli settlers were not so observant or you know 
I didn't notice too many kippahs in the film, but maybe that's just like historically accurate to the time that like not a lot of Jews at the beginning were wearing kippahs or mezuzahs on the door or praying and stuff like that. Maybe they just, just, you know, I'm kind of given a little bit of leeway in, in, as to the depiction of like the Jewish practice in the film. A, not because, you know, you don't need that like window dressing in a film that's already so Jewish. Like in other movies, you're like, oh, I think I see a kippah. Oh, I think I see a mezuzah. Okay, it's a Jewish movie. It's like this movie is so rooted in Jewishness because of by virtue of the fact that it takes place in Israel and, you know, we have our Israeli forces and Egyptians and like that's the whole story of the founding of Israel. And so I might go a little bit higher, but I still I'm a little bit persuaded by your argument. So I might go four and a half and sort of say that like, you know, we're most of the way there. Dinah, I, I really hope that you'll still um still you'll still be cool with you know the fact that we don't i mean but i feel like you know jews disagree that's just like in our blood so oh yeah two jews three opinions that's right well three jews three opinions i feel like you guys are gatekeeping judaism a little bit or what's jewish and i'm more of a jew belong sure if a jew is a jew is a jew is a jew sure but you're also pointing to the difference between diaspora jews and israeli jews mm -hmm. because like you're in israel everyone's jewish everywhere you look right well, you know, there's also 2 million Arabs, but for the most part, you're living in a Jewish country. You're looking at, you don't need to differ. And she, I'm like, I'm wearing my high. I'm like, I'm going to let these people know I'm Jewish today in my IDF shirt. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Like I'm sure. a proud, you know what I mean? So, but I think what you said is so true. It's like when it's, when you're watching something that is for the masses, like in America, you know, you have to have these very, the Judaica, you know, out and that's what differentiates us. But when you're seeing a movie like this and there, it is such a melting pot of, a you know, Israel's a refugee state of Jews from all over the MENA region. 70% of Israeli Jews come from the Middle East. They were expelled from their Middle Eastern countries, all these Arab states that kicked them out forcibly. And there's only 30% that are Ashkenazi. And then you have your Beta Israel and you have, uh, you know, coming from Ethiopia and other places in Africa. And you have, um, you know, Sephardic Jews coming from all the way from the Inquisition. <laughs> so it's like, you know, what is, I'm just saying, what is what makes it Jewish beyond the typical I you know I you see a character touching a mezuzah and kissing it or you know or your the Hava Nagila pops up right this one if think you know luckily they picked something more obscure right well not to they, Harry Harry knew it yeah well <laughs> exactly I, I think for me you know just to explain kind of where I'm coming from like I Again, we, we've spoken about a lot of films that, and I think especially they feel more successful and more able to convey real people when they don't tokenize like that. And when you don't get the, you know, and I think I, I tried not to like do the, the yarmulke account and try to like look at that because to me, that's that's not the marker of, of Jewish. Sure, I mean, of course, sure. it, it is one of the guys, identifiers. Yeah, but These guys were soldiers. Yeah. They yeah. were 100%. Yeah, totally. And, and I, they were soldiered up, you know what I mean? And sure. I totally agree that, especially the presentation of Jewishness on the, on screen, you know, for these people, like they are 
you know, I wouldn't suggest this, but no less Jewish than, you know, anyone wearing a big kippah or payas or, you know, sure. looking a certain way, because that was 100% accurate to the Jewishness of, of the experience. You know, I think the movie is really successful because it takes these Jewish characters and this story becomes more about their own survival and legacy and ability to live their lives freely, which includes practicing their Jewishness, of course, but to me, it just goes beyond that. I think this movie is really about the way that they try to tell their story and the way that, you know, this movie explores the way that their story has been told and the way that they couldn't communicate and the way that we don't always look at every side and the way that it's dealing with propaganda. And I, I think it does all that while casting these, I, I would say, you know, as Jewish characters, you know, this sort of content, or if, if that was a metric, you know, how Jewish do the characters seem? I mean, they they get the five out of five. I think this movie is so successful in a way. I think it's better because it's concerned with much more than that, because it's not just about right. the Jewishness of their experience, because it's treating them like, you know, it's it's not just talking about the Jewish experience. It's talking about the, the realities of war and the realities of, rep of presentation of war. And I think that makes for a better movie. To me, it just screams less Jewish in terms of the goals of the movie, in terms of thematically where it's going. So that's why, you know, my my total spranking for just how Jewish the movie is, which again is this arbitrary metric we make up every week. Yeah. It's is gonna focused, be is yeah, gonna be whatever. stuck at the four, exactly. But um but I but I think the movie's better for it that it doesn't just say like, well really this was just about you know, fighting for the ability to light Hanukkah candles. And that's what they only, only that was the only thing they cared about. Like, no, these are real people who cared about more than that. And I right. think that's really, really powerful. They were showing Hanukkah instead of like presenting. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Good call. Right. Show don't tell for right. sure. We're I mean, not, we're not just like lighting candles because we're obsessed with light. We're, I mean, we are obsessed with light, but we're, we're not just doing, we're doing that to commemorate the Maccabees. And this was very much a Maccabee moment. Right. Yeah. For sure. But you're still sticking with your four. I'm still sticking with my four and a half. And Diana Leffert, thank you so much. You're sticking with your six or five out of five. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about Image of Victory. This is such a, like one of the, you know, obviously hanging out with you, Harry, is, is a real treat. But I, I love that the guests bring in a new movie that I have not heard of or seen. When that happens, I'm just like, oh, this is great. So I got to experience this movie for the first time uh, the other day. And I would encourage everyone, maybe who has watched this or who has listened this far, to go back and actually watch the movie. Because as I often say, our description is not doing the film justice, really. You know, this is an audio medium, but the film does, it's beautifully shot. There's like amazing special effects, all sorts of good stuff in there. So go check it out. And as of now, it's still on Netflix. So it's even easier to access than most. Yeah. Yeah. yeah get it while it's still hot and fresh on Netflix. It's true. Absolutely. But you know what? I just want to say thank you so much. And it was an honor and a privilege. And thank you, you know, for inviting me on. I had a blast. Thanks so much for letting me share this movie. I just, I'm, I'm so happy to share it. I hope people really will go watch it yeah absolutely Dinah is there anything that you'd want to plug tell people where they can find you outside of this podcast of course yeah thanks um you can find me at at Dinah Leffert d-i-n-a-h-l-e-f-f-e-r-t on Instagram and Twitter I'm still on Facebook but I'm really more engaged in those two and then I have a show coming up next month uh that I'll be posting. If you're in the LA area, I'll be posting it soon. It's going to be a great show at a really cool venue uh, called The Overlook in Silver Lake. And uh, other than that, I'm filming some fun sketches. There's definitely things that are going to be popping up 
Um, so yeah, come to my page and, and I will make sure that's that I'm posting that stuff up so you can catch me in some of this new political sketches that I'm doing is um, making fun of Kanye West and it's, it's some fun stuff. We'll definitely uh, put a link to your social stuff in our show notes for the episode. But uh, yeah, thank you, Dinah, again for, for coming on the podcast to discuss the movie. Um, and thanks everyone for listening to Jews on Film. Uh, you can reach out to us at Jews on Film um, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, on TikTok. It always takes me a second to figure all this stuff out. And you can email us at JewsOnFilmPod at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for a movie you want us to cover, if you have any feedback or thoughts on the episode. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.